Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus, and I'm gonna just tell you this upfront. You must get on the mailing list because it's the only way you are gonna hear about upcoming live tapings, which are featuring Jon Stewart and Olympia Dukakis and Ethan Hawke and so much more coming up in 2015. So get on that mailing list. And if you can donate, please do. It takes more than a village to get off a show like this and bring it to you for free. And if you can donate, go to employeeofthemonthshow.com. It's very easy and your money is going to help play for what you're listening to right now. So please do that. And once you hear my interview with Frank Bruni, you'll know why I am asking um, for you to support this pretty unusual mix of both journalism and just conversation. And I hope fun for you. It certainly was for us. This episode was taped live at Joe's Pub. Frank Bruni is a journalist. He was the chief restaurant critic at the New York Times. He also got to serve at the Times covering the White House under Bush, as well as being stationed in Italy covering the Vatican. And now he is the first openly gay op-ed columnist, although he discusses what role that really plays in his life. Ambling into History is one of his books, The Unlikely Odyssey of George W. Bush. A Gospel of Shame is one that I highly recommend, um, which was one of the very first books looking at the Catholic Church and child abuse, and he has a whole new book coming out um, very soon, which is exciting, about getting into college and what it really means. And he's probably most famous for Born Round, uh, which is a memoir about growing up with an eating disorder and what it was like to not just face it head on, but also learn to relish in and enjoy food in a way that allows you to have it. It's funny, it's like the one addiction that you actually can't just cut food cold turkey. It's its own challenge. I don't think it's a challenge to listen to my interview with Frank Bruni. It's a lot of fun. And you'll find out he has a meatball, I'm sorry, excuse me, a meatloaf book coming out, but you'll hear why I just mentioned meatballs. All right, here's my interview with Mr. Frank Bruni. What I want to first do is ask you, uh, one of your colleagues um, asked me to ask you, who is Francine? Oh, um, wow. So you've been talking to Jennifer Steinhauer. That's pretty good reporting. Writes, you did great. Uh, she writes from Washington. Uh, Francine is, um, <clears throat> wow, I don't even know how to explain that. Um, Francine is the person I become on the phone with her when I'm dispensing harsh life advice. <laughs> She always says, what would Francine say? And I give her really good, harsh advice that I would never follow myself. And then I always say, now I'll take the caller from Wichita. <laughs> because it's very talk radio-like. Yeah. Um, maybe that's a good segue to the next question. Is there any, do you feel any significance to being the first um, publicly out gay columnist at the New York Times? You know, no, because I feel like by the time it happened <clears throat> in, uh, in 2011, it, it felt like a kind of inevitability. You know, I mean, I mean, We've had plenty of columnists at the Times who've written, I think, very sensitively about gay issues. The fact that, that I'm the first one who's openly gay on the op-ed page, I don't think... I mean, maybe it's meaningful to people, I hope so, but I, I feel like the Times has been so good on this issue for so long. Um, I was going to look at it as they were so behind on most like, cultural trends that it would make sense. But, you know, we've been, no, we've been really good on this one. If you, if you look back in time, there was, a, there was many, many years ago, the Times had a lot of things to answer for on this score. But we've been, as a newspaper, our coverage um, of LGBT issues for a while now, I think, has been exemplary. Fabulous. And I'm not just being a corporate spokesman. I really mean it. Um, speaking of corporate spokesmen, uh, no, I, that's not really real. I mean, that's a fake segue. Um, a, you, you were working for something there, yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to know, how much advance time do you plan this week? I'm going to write about uh, how colleges are, you know, shilling and marketing and sometimes 
uh, very confusing ways to young people. And then this week I'm going to write about how annoying it is to write, take an airplane. Um, uh, it, it, it varies. Sometimes you plan several days in advance and then you decide at the last minute to change. Sometimes you plan long in advance, like you look at the calendar. Uh, I knew I was, I turned 50 a couple weeks ago. I knew I wanted to write something pegged to that. So I kind of had it in my calendar that on this given Sunday I would write something about that, but I didn't know what it was. So it, it's all over the map. Did you get more happy birthdays on Facebook after writing the column? I don't. About I don't have my birthday on Facebook, <laughs> and because I, I feel like a birthday on Facebook is like saying to people, "Please say happy birthday to me." Yes. Yeah. Um, Very much so. Right. That's and then if you've been on Facebook for several years and you change anything about your status, mm -hmm. it sends that out as an alert. You know, so, so for instance, my Facebook apparently I'm such a technological moron that when okay. I set it up, I wrote in a relationship, but, it, it, but apparently I put private setting on that, which makes no sense, right? So only I can see that I'm in a relationship. <laughs> but I'm afraid that if I change it now, it will literally send it out as a notice and people will start congratulating me for something that happened six years ago. So, you, should, yeah. you should set up a registry and see if you can get gifts for it. That's a good idea. That's a really good idea, yeah. So I'm very oh, excited. I'm, we're going to go out of order in, in your career trajectory because it is so vast, but um, you are working on, you've already written this book, but it's going to be out, when is it coming out? Uh, March 17th. It's called Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be, and it's an antidote to the college admissions mania. Um, you have no personal stake in the game. You have no kids who are going to college. I have uh, 11 nieces and nephews, only one of whom is in college so far, so. But after reading Born Round, I know that your brothers and sister can They're very feckend, my brothers and sisters. I was going to say economically stable so that they can afford to take care of yes, the yes, tuition. Yes, that's so true. So I was curious, why now do you want to focus on um, this subject and deal with all the anxious parents? My niece is a freshman in college, and so last year she was going through this whole process, and i very close to her. She's the oldest of my nieces and nephews, and I watched her do it. Um, and I was just appalled by how crazy it's gotten. I mean, I thought when I was back, I went to a prep school, everyone Loomis was... Chafee. Yes. Everyone was obsessed about where they were going to go to college. I was obsessed about where I was going to go to college. And it felt to me like it couldn't get any more fevered than that. And it's exponentially worse than that now. Um, and I watched her go through it. I was horrified. I wrote a column at the end of last March about it. And I don't think I've ever written a column that, that yielded or solicited or whatever so many incredibly moving emails from readers. Um, about, you know, I've been through this with my kid or even from high schoolers themselves. And I looked at my inbox one day and I realized I have half of a book in this inbox and I've hit a nerve and I thought I want to write something that will be a relief and a comfort to kids and parents going through this since that's what this book is meant to be. Um, so I have a question because you went to a very elite schools and the people I know that went to very elite schools, they're allowed to believe, which I, I envy, that they are the best and the brightest. Um, and I think a little bit of that confidence might be a good thing in the real world. You know, I, I wish I had a little of that. I delusion. think it cuts. I think it cuts both ways. I mean, I think I think it can it can help you, or it can become a crutch. You know, if you, I know a lot of people in this world who think because they have a degree from X, Y, or Z school, that will do all the speaking for them. That's all. They just simply need to invoke that or put it on their resume, and that's the end of it. And I think it's what you do. And I think people who aren't making the assumptions that an elite degree can make some people make, but not all. I think those people in some ways might be better off because they're trying to get by by deeds. They're trying to get by on deeds and not diplomas. Well, I think if anyone went to a school called XYZ School, it'd be hard to have a, a delusional sense of confidence. Pedophile's actions from his point of view. 
And in the course of it, I became an expert of sorts at the time on child sexual abuse. And I had a friend who kept meeting young men uh, who had been abused as altar boys by priests. And so the two of us realized we should maybe kind of marry these two things and, 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 and do a book of some sort. I'm impressed that you had the bravery to use the word marriage and, and in the same sentence as pedophile. pedophile. Well, my um, pedophile was my pedophile. Um, he, <laughs> <laughs> let's redact that. Um, <laughs> the pedophile whom I got to know so well. Let's know. Let's just... Um, Yep, 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 yep. I think the pedophile sounds much more uh, the sophisticated. Pedophile, the pedophile I, I wrote about was, in fact, married with two kids. And the way he got to know the victim he went to prison for was it was a friend of one of his sons who lived across the street. Which is, that's an important part of the whole story is it often happens that way. It's not just somebody jumping out from behind a bush. I, I totally, at my um, high school, we had all these like cases where teachers were sleeping with female students and I was never picked. I was never one of the... <laughs> Picked. I'm not touching that. Um, it's a perfect segue for my next question. Have you ever felt like you got too chummy with a subject? Yeah, yeah. Who? I mean, too many to mention. It, it's, not, it's not that you get too chummy with a subject. It's just that it can be very, very difficult when you're writing about, when, uh, when you're spending a lot of time with someone for a profile, when you're covering anybody day in and day out. Um, you know, the, the dictates of human etiquette make it, you know, that, that you want to be polite to that person. And um, often people are really great to you when they're interacting with you as a reporter. Um, and it becomes difficult, I think any reporter will say this, to kind of see them utterly clearly um, because you, you know them in an incidental social way. You know? Did you have that experience with George Bush when you were covering him because he was so nice and it probably is very nice? As a you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I never, I, I always knew who I was covering. I mean, I always knew that he was, that I was covering him because he was a politician. Um, he was a man who was tough to get your mind around um, because he could be so... Um, incredibly charismatic and even even verbally and intellectually nimble when you were sitting with him one-on-one. -on -one. And then he would get to a lectern and it would all fall apart. And it was the most fascinating thing to behold because you would think that someone running for the presidency would first and foremost be good at those formal ceremonial things. Or at least and he was try, terrible at them. At least try Toastmasters. But he also, he was also... <laughs> He was also two very different men. I mean, people forget it now, but when he was running for president in 2000 as the governor of Texas, he was known as this unusually bipartisan, moderate Republican governor of Texas. And then he went to the White House, and I think he kind of governed as a president in an entirely different way. And I think it makes it very confusing for all of us as voters to know what to look for in candidates because they don't always end up being an extrapolation of themselves to that point. I mean, we had that with Romney and healthcare, right? Right, well, Romney was 500 different people in, in you know, in five months. And, in, uh, in one jaw. Yeah. In one, in one serious jawline. Um, <laughs> what I was fascinated with is people always say that Bush uh, was the one who was so closed off from the press, but isn't Obama even more closed No, off actually, from the press? It's, it's funny. In retrospect, people, reporters miscovering Bush. They're much more frustrated with Obama in terms of access, yeah. <clears throat> Obama's the much more controlled, less access president, yeah. Um, and as a candidate, he was like that too. I mean, Bush was someone who came back in the plane a lot, et cetera, and uh, he was kind of the last one who really did that. McCain was the one who set the gold standard for that. He would just, you know, practically have pajama parties with the reporters covering him. Seriously, it was... Did they have a coach, or you guys, it's just all first class? No, we're... <laughs> No, the way it works is the first class section is the candidate and his or her advisors. 
and then all the reporters are in coach. Okay. Yeah. So you guys get smaller chairs and everything? Yeah, but we usually had a chair. But I'll tell you, the worst, and this is interesting to note because of, of the semiotics of it, the worst dichotomy I've ever seen was the papal plane. So I covered the Pope for a couple of years for the Times. <laughs> he and has the, his own plane? Yes. Well, I mean, no, he has... Where is he, he going? He charters a plane for every trip that he takes. <laughs> but <laughs> every time you get on one of these train planes, the first class section he for the Vatican... He has his own city. Where is he going? He goes to preach to... I mean, when I was following Pope John Paul II, we went to Slovakia, we went to... Poland, we went to Guatemala. Oh, we then he deserves place, a train, you know? his own plane. So. But I mean, that was a situation where you would watch them wheel these carts like that looked like the Christmas goose and stuff like this past you, and then they'd come back and throw you a paper bag with a, with a smushed ham sandwich in it. And you'd be like, this is the Catholic Church, okay. <laughs> not very giving, even though they're known for um, actually doing so much, and I'm not kidding, I'm not being uh, facetious, that they do so much charity Work. No, the Catholic Church does amazing, I mean, yeah, I shouldn't be so glib. The Catholic Church does amazing great deeds in this world. But there is a sort of disconnect between the way, um, up until this current pope, the way the hierarchy has behaved and what the mission of the church is supposed to be. You could kind of tell they'd be cheap with food, though, with those crackers you guys eat. You know? Like, the like communion the, wafers? Yeah, the yeah. communion wafers. <laughs> we don't, don't, we don't, we don't think it. of that as eating. <laughs> That's not a snack. <laughs> We don't, we don't walk up there with cheese whiz, and when they say body of Christ, I want mine with some whiz, you know. It's more a snudge. It's just a little... I thought it was odd that it didn't come with any condiments or anything. I was, I was like, that seems a little cheap. Like, I thought you guys had mayonnaise or something with it. Um, how did being a subject of your book, Born Round, which I absolutely love, you wrote about your experience growing up and, and your trouble, not just with an eating disorder, but I would say body dysmorphia. Um, how did being a subject influence your reporting? Like, when you exposed yourself and were vulnerable this way, oh, did, yeah, it, did it change... Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm embarrassingly naked in that book, yeah. Did it change the way that you, when you were talking to people and asking them personal questions? No, not really. I mean, and, and the funny thing is I, I reported the book in some ways the way I would anything else. I mean, I went, because one's own memory is only so robust, I went back and I interviewed my dad, I interviewed my siblings, I interviewed my uncles, like, to try to kind of remember things not about the family's life and about my life that that I might not remember, because our memories are really strange. I mean, I went back and talked to friends from college, and you know, we always talk about people remembering things the different way. That's not what I found, but what I found is everybody remembers different things. So the four events I thought were significant in a friendship, it turned out that friend remembered four entirely other events that were lost to me, and it was really surprising. I was so impressed. It was the first book I had read about a male struggling with eating disorder, even though I did crew in college, so I, I remember the lightweight scene. You did crew? Scene. I know. I didn't say we, we were Division three, and I didn't say... What college? Wesleyan? I mean, I'm obsessed with colleges now, so... Yeah. yeah. Oh, Wesleyan's in the book. Michael Roth, the president of Wesleyan. I mean, I know. I, I, times, I yawned yeah. through the whole speech. I know, I know. <laughs> no, 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 just kidding. I, you had a great talk at the 92nd Street Y. I do wish that I had... I graduated with a moral compass and phenomenal friends, and I do wish I had a couple and life probably skills. probably great abs and good delts, too, right? If you yes, were a crew, I did. right? I was called Lats. Yeah. yeah. But... Um, anyways, back to... Did you get up before 7 a.m. to do that? I did. At the time, I got up at 5.30 in the morning. And yeah. do I get a fun-to-dress Barbie on the way out? You, you know what? You do not. That's but that is, a, that is a realistic question. Um, the other thing that I love that you... I'll fight you for one. I have, I have the perfect boy... I have the perfect boyfriend, Kendall, at home, and because I have the perfect boyfriend, you can have my perfect boyfriend, Kendall. I'll I do not that. have any dolls at home. Well, most Actually, most that's a lie. Someone once gave me an Ann Coulter doll. Are you serious? So I have an Ann Coulter doll. Oh, that I won't trade for. Um, 
So I did also want to ask about being a restaurant critic. It's what you're famous for. When you got um, a $40,000 ad taken out against you, I think that's how much they cost. I think it was more. I'm not sure. Even more. Yeah. Um, let's show the ad. Hopefully we have it coming up. Um, yeah, oh, that's here. not me. No, that is me. I'm that is you. <laughs> okay. But so you got an ad taken out, a full-page ad in the New York Times talking about how what a terrible review you gave. Right. Did the New York Times advertising section, did they give you a bonus or no, a cut No, I, I felt I should have gotten a commission, uh, but I did not get anything for that, no. It's amazing. Not so, even a thank you. Not even a thank no. you from the ad department. Um, so You know what, I never noticed the police department logos on that before. That's great. It's <laughs> official. It's amazing. Now that one, I, I could only find a small one, that's why you can't blow it up, but... I was curious, when you were, you talk a lot about being a restaurant critic and what it was like, and it seems so um, glorious, but one of the things I thought was very strange, because you, you had to do all these disguises to hide yourself, and you'd have, um, you know, names you would use and all these things. Why did you dine out with famous people? I didn't much. Only a couple times. But, like, if you're going out with Sarah Jessica Parker or Alec Baldwin, like... So Aren't they going to treat them differently than they're going to treat the rest of us? When yeah, we read at most, at, well, there are two, two answers to that. One is at most restaurants, they do recognize you. I mean, the kind of unacknowledged truth is if you've been the New York Times restaurant critic for more than six months, they go to such incredible lengths to make sure they know what you look like, that you're, you're using fake names, you're using fake credit cards, but it's all sort of this... It's all sort of this proper behavior in the foreground that's masking the fact that everybody knows what's going on. So, and there are certain restaurants that are so good at recognizing you that you know they know who you are the minute you walk in the door. So to go in there with a celebrity is, is no different. And if anything, you could argue that it actually throws them off your scent because they're so focused on Sarah or Alec, they don't care about the schmuck over there sitting beside them. You know? I see. But they don't do better service because it's Sarah Jessica Parker or Alec Baldwin. I'm sure they do, but you know, I mean, you can tell the difference between, you know, extremely solicitous service that's above and beyond and what the person at the next table is getting. Okay. And we also visited every, we, we visit every restaurant at least three times, so going one time with someone. But I didn't, I mean, that was a, you, I don't even know how you knew I went out with those two, but that was, <laughs> I actually, Sarah Jessica Parker, uh, and we, we did that twice, yeah. She didn't eat parsley either time. Uh, parsley wasn't a part of the equation the first time. The second time, she was very anti-parsley. And, and, it, 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 and I was such a Sex in the City fan that I did a kind of double take because there was a whole episode where she went out to eat and she said she was allergic to parsley and her date said, are you really? And she said, no, but if you don't say that, it will appear somewhere. And so when she sat there and said, please, no parsley, I thought, wow, this is like one of those blendings of, of life and TV. I didn't know what to do with it. Um, I know that you love meatloaf. I'm doing a meatloaf cookbook, yeah. Is that true? It's absolutely true, yeah. That's amazing. Well, then it is a wonderful segue to, I want to see um, if you can test these meatballs. We're going to do a blind test, taste test. Well, I test. have a bad cold, so... Well, no, none of us ate the balls. No, 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 I'm just saying my, my powers of discernment oh, are not oh. at their peak. Okay. Um, all right, so we have A, B, and C. B is, I wish you could see this better. B is so... Horrific looking. Do we have a fork and a... Hold on. Do no, I have, mean, look at, look at B. Let me get you a fork and knife. You have a cold... Have, have people have used their forks and knives? Can you guys see B? Is there any clean, Can anybody see B here? Clean knife. Oh, we can oh, see here, it. Oh, even better. Can, can you guys see that? Much. Yeah, that ain't right. Doesn't that look like some beast's lost testicle? <laughs> it's about to go in your mouth. Eat so. up. No, Eat I know. I'm, I'm well aware. Yeah. <laughs> Very excited. What am I supposed to do about these? So you you're going to tell us which one... No, 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 thank you. You're going to tell us That's, which one is wait, your... I have to eat it, but you don't. <laughs> I'll eat after the cold. Um, uh, 
you have to tell us which one is the best, and then we're going to tell you which ones they are. That's A. Yeah. Someone didn't flag very well. You not have your own fork. No, you have no Thank excuse. Thank you very much. Is that A? A? Mm-hmm. How does it taste? I like A. Okay. How many stars would you give it? I have to have context here. I got to try the other one. I got to try the horrible looking B one here. Right. It's relative. Got it. This is so. Visuals matter in food. You made B, didn't you? Oh! Oh snap! Well, I've seen you in the kitchen. I watched the video. You know. <laughs> This isn't even close. A is the best by far. Okay. So, so how many stars would you give A? One, one, one. I don't star meat meatball. <laughs> we want the New York Times Stand unofficial. This would be more of a restaurant, Damn. you know. <laughs> so Joe's pub. No. This is not Joe's. This is meatball. not Joe's pub. Yeah, star them. So where's A from? We can't tell you. You got to tell us first, and then we'll and then we'll. So A's best. There are like three thousand <laughs> restaurants in this city. I'm supposed to tell you where yeah. A is from? No, 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 idea. no just star. What will you give that? I have to star these. Yeah. Okay. How about zero for B, <laughs> one for C, and two for A? How's that? Okay. Oh wow, not good. Wait, out of how many? Okay, stars? you got two and a half for A. Yeah. Two, two and a half. Uh, still. I mean, it's I wouldn't not go like, there. That's like a when they have a C on the like health. No, two and a half is well, good. How long have they been sitting in the green room? Too? Okay. This is a, Sorry. In the fridge, in the fridge, in the green room. Just A. Oh, yeah, refrigerated. Okay. Also, um, is this out of how many stars? Four or five? I think it was out of four. Four okay. stars. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so A got one star. No, no, no. A got two, but then I two curved it up to two and a half because you were so derisive. Okay, two and a half. I was just coddling it like they do at the at the and um, even university. even with your derision, I keep B at zero. Okay, good. And I'll I'll I'll, I'll scale C up to one and a half. How's that? Okay, where what is? And now we get to find out exactly where yeah. these meatballs are from in the Frank Bruni Meatball Challenge. Meatball A, the best tasting meatball with a whole two point five out of four stars. Used to be two stars, now two point five. <laughs> From the meatball shop, particularly the one in the Lower East Side. Okay, That's what about one. B? Let's talk about B. This, this is obviously this not. This is going to be some restaurateur who's Frank... a friend of mine. This is what's going to happen to me. Watch. Obviously not the meatball that Frank would like in his mouth. It is disgusting looking. Possibly made by Katie. Zero stars out of four. Not made by Katie. Made by IKEA. <laughs> so it's horse meat. Swedish horse meat at that, no, and got, the final the meatball, meatball C that landed right in the middle with a whopping one star out of four, is from Esposito's Italian restaurant. It's in Brooklyn. Do you ever come to Brooklyn? I do come to Brooklyn. I want you to make sure that you fit in in the foodie world, so I got you a pork slope food co-op bag wow. with some cheeses from Italy and also some olives. I want to thank Frank Bruni. Thank you thank for you, coming. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you to Ian Mazoff. Thank you to all of you for listening and get on the mailing list because there's so many great live tapings coming up. John Stewart, Olympia Dukakis, Ethan Hawke, you be there for now. You just need to be you. But you should also get on that mailing list as well. Employee of the Month Thank you. Have a good one. Bye.